Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. This is a Rogue Media Network podcast. Coming up on The Payoff, Anna David is a New York Times bestselling author. She is also a force of nature who is 23 years sober. I could tell you all about it, but every other podcast I listen to to do research on her, she's so accomplished when people do the intro, it takes like five minutes. So I'm going to let her take care of business. Uh, This conversation with Anna David was one of my favorite uh, in the time I've done this podcast, and we're coming up on four years. So please listen and please enjoy. But first, Kevin Souza. The first thing I want to start with, obviously this is, I find people like you interesting regardless um, because of, of your success, but also like I find other sober people like super interesting. You know, that's why I started to do this because somebody's experience, strength and hope is super inspiring. And and yours, you begin, I'm from the Northeast. So I know, I remember Crazy Eddie and I've heard you speak about your dad who was. Oh my God, you know that even, sorry, my cat will come in and out. I'll be chill about it. Crazy Eddie. Oh my God. So your dad was like the crazy Eddie of like, like Marin County up in Northern California. I don't even really talk about that that much, but you, you, he was, he was in Daly city, which was like actually kind of like an hour and a half away, but yeah, of the Bay area. So you grew up, I mean, you talk about, you grew up with, you're, you're a a person of means. Like you, you grew up in a nice area. It's complicated, but yes, yes. (laughs) Yeah. It does get complicated from what I learned, you know, and part of your trauma, right. With part of our, our, we all have, everybody has their degree of family stuff. Right. And it's like, yeah. it happened to you. So it's a big deal. Like, cause I'm always comparing myself out like, well, that person had that happen. And that seems like it was this incredible situation. And I'll, I'll kind of minimize my own stuff. Right. Yeah. And here's what I'll say about mine. I know of far worse stories. I don't know of what any that's more confusing. Like my <laughs> trauma is these people are wizards, my family, at trauma. <laughs> like, it's next level. And so, and so, yeah, I always think mine's worse than everyone's. And it's not. I yeah. mean, I've heard t- stories of torture. So, you know, but um, mine was only emotional torture. But so, yes, I- I'm very impressed with your research. <laughs> yeah, so you grew up, you grew up in that area. Uh, you had this sort of, like, prolific figure for a father, or at least, like, charismatic, and he was out there. no he's the least charismatic human ever but he was out there yes okay so he was out there and you started to he gets in some trouble he builds this kind of like stereo thing like empire and you're making money but then he gets he gets in some trouble and you're in high school and it all kind of syncs up with when you start to drink and use like take us through some of that are we we're recording i totally didn't even realize we were recording yeah we're, Uh, we're, we're going Oh, man, we've been recording this whole time. I was just like so charmed. We're going to like, take off the beginning part. Don't worry. Yeah. You know what? You can, you can do whatever. Okay. So um, 
people always say it's like, oh, this happened and this happened, but that doesn't make me an alcoholic. And I always say it's like, maybe it didn't, but it sure didn't help. And I know very few people who are, are in recovery who didn't have pretty, pretty, um, not well families or, you know, trauma in some, maybe the trauma wasn't related to their family. Um, so it, it's interesting because when you said that, what you just said about like the timing being my dad getting in trouble and the using started totally brought me back to when I was in rehab. I remember my counselor saying that and, and it was that conversation when you I don't know if you, if you had this, um, I, I'm sorry. How long are you sober? I forgot to even ask. Uh, no, that's cool. Uh, just had 12 years. And I know you just Amazing. had 23. 23. Yeah. And so it's like, I like, I remember having that conversation with his name, Sammy and being like, and being like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm an alcoholic. And he, and, and he goes, you know, you described to me these nights of, you know, doing cocaine alone all night long. Now, if you told me that happened to you once or twice, I would say maybe we could have that conversation. You're telling me it happened hundreds of times. <laughs> and anyway, in that conversation, we talked about that. As I as I look back now with, with much more, you know, sort of analysis, yeah, those things were related, but it's more like um, my dad is a really troubled guy. And so that was just more indicative of his troubles than something that traumatized me. I've always, for whatever reason, and I think it's really saved me, not really felt like ashamed of my I, I, I feel I felt so different from them that nothing they did ever really rubs off on me except what they do to me. So it's kind of like I was just like it was it was more um, it didn't make me feel ashamed. It was just more kind of of what my family does that makes sense it does make sense and you when, when you talk about you know you start to drink in like I think you talk like you're 12 years old or eighth grade do you remember what kind of impact that had on you because for me it was my first spiritual oh, wow. experience I mean I I always say this and people that listen to this get tired I mean, they probably don't even care enough to get tired but when I was in eighth <laughs> grade I was terrified to go to the dance and then I started right. to drink in ninth grade and I could not wait to get there and and that and and not everyone was like that I've come to learn was that a similar situation for you? So similar. I remember it so well. And it's interesting because I go to I go to 12 step meetings every day still. And the speaker this morning said it so well. He's like, look, I would never have lost my virginity if it wasn't for drinking. He's like, I literally would not have. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so for me, um, I, I, the first drink was not that magical. But the second one was um, high school. Um, Everybody was in love with Mike Zimmerman. Mike, if you're listening, I'm not sure what's happened to you, but <laughs> I was a freshman. He was a senior. We were all obsessed with him. And I, you know, couldn't speak in his presence. And then at this party, Andrew Pavlovsky's party, I remember I went, I drank, I drank beer. I felt good. I felt amazing. And when he walked by, I said to him, you know, I have AD plus MZ written on my binder. And I was like, I can't believe that came out of my mouth. And he goes, really? I have MZ plus AD written on mine. And I had this moment where I was like, okay, alcohol not only gives me the ability to say what I've always wanted to say, but it gets me what I want. Um, and that was pretty magical. Yeah. Oh, my God. So much for me, too. The same exact stuff. I love what what you, you just shared about that, what that speaker said this morning. Like, as a, as a guy, especially... 
I don't know, in my mind, it's like we're supposed to take the lead or whatever, say, the th and I can never say anything. And, and yeah. once I drank, I could. Um, and so you, yeah. you, for your situation like that, you know, it starts to really impact you and we think like a, a positive way, right? And I've, and I've seen some of the talks that you've given, um, like just glimpses of them at, at college campuses. I love when you talk about, you know, it's, it's like this finite self-esteem that it gives us. We never learn any of these behaviors to talk to other people, to deal with stuff. You know, how much did you use alcohol and drugs as like a conduit to relationships and other people? It was, it was really everything after a while. And I remember thinking if I met someone during the day, I go, I think, you know, I wish I could meet them at night because my <laughs> nighttime self is so much better. And it was like, no, it was my drinking self. Um, that was so much better. And, and in many ways, it did help me establish a personality that did exist outside of drinking. But, um, but yeah, you know, it just becomes such a part of what you do that you don't even really think of it. I, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I got sober and I heard, you know, we all live with a hundred forms of fear, I thought, oh, how sad for these people that they're <laughs> so scared. Not me. I'm not scared of anything. Yeah. And I didn't realize I still, I still am grappling with fear. Yeah. That's why we still go to, that's why you woke up and, and went to a meeting this morning. I mean, that's, yeah. and, and when I realized my, my, my answer and my key to any kind of like healthy existence is understanding that I still have those fears and I have to like, I got to squash them because a lot of times they're just bullshit, but I need to go places where, you know, for me too, it's 12 step where I can figure yeah. it out. So you start to, you end up starting to do, I, I, I'm like kindred spirits. I was, I was a big time. Once I started to do cocaine, I was like, I'm going to do this every day for the rest of yeah. my life. Like, yeah. how, how did that grab you? And what happened to your life when that addiction started to take hold? Yeah, I mean, Coke was so amazing those first few times. And and then it's like I heard somebody say, say uh, a comedian in a 12-step room say, you know, I hated cocaine. I just liked the way it smelled. Because <laughs> after a while, it's like, oh, my God, the hatred. I remember the first time I did it was um, in high school. We were visiting college campuses. My high school took us to – I went to college in Connecticut, by you the way. You went to Trinity. Yeah, yeah, huge fan of the Northeast. Yeah. Where are you? You're in Boston? No, I'm well, I'm from Philadelphia. I'm in Texas right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, big yeah. fan of Texas too. I'm kind of a fan of everywhere that isn't <laughs> Los Angeles right now. Or California. <laughs> That's where you um, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so we went, I don't remember what school we were visiting, and um, and I remember some guy had come. Can I tell I you what school it was? Because I heard you I, it was Dartmouth. No, because I've never been to Dartmouth. Okay, 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 okay. I've heard you say I think it was Dartmouth before. Okay, go ahead. Okay. You know my life better than I do you know the story already because no, I've, I want, I've never told. Come on, let's go. So, so I just remember we're in the, I think it was the men's bathroom. Like it was guys and they were like, time to cook. And I, what I remember about it is the look on this, this guy's, Chris Green. I remember the look on his face of like, he wasn't doing it and he saw me do it. And I was like, kind of that thing I saw in him, I was like, oh, maybe what I'm doing is shocking because look how shocked that person looks. I don't feel shocked by it at all. To me, it's like, yeah, of course. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I don't think I did it for, no, 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 no. Then I did it at prom. And you know those nights where it just goes really awry? 
um, I remember we're in a limo and somebody tells the story, like someone's got the coke out. Someone tells the story. They're like, did you know Len Bias died the first time he did cocaine? Do you know? I, I don't oh. even know who that is. He's oh, an yeah. Athlete. Oh, yeah. He played he played at Maryland. And because I'm a sports guy, he played at Maryland. He was a number two draft pick by the Celtics. And the night after he got drafted, he overdosed on coke. Which is, you know, it's pretty hard to do. That. I mean, it's it's yeah. um, not common compared to other drugs. And it's a, that's a really beginning of like a really bad trip. I know we don't trip on coke, but I remember someone said that. And then like I did my line, I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and then, you know, it just, it just it didn't work. Like I'm just freaking out. My heart's racing, all that stuff. And then, I'm, you know, I, I tried it, I did it, college, whatever. And then it really, you know, really takes off once you are buying it yourself. And that wasn't until about um, 97. So when, when, so you go to Trinity and then you're, 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 you've been a writer since jump right you've always been yeah. a right of creatively this is before during and after right like addiction right or, or or drug use and alcohol use how did you get started writing so i i majored in creative writing and i was actually submitting stories to highlights magazine when i was like 12 years old <laughs> yeah. and um and then i i had um at the end of college, I realized that everyone else has plans and they're like, I'm going to acting school. I'm going to the Morgan Stanley trainee program. And I was like, wait, I have no idea. Nobody told me I had to figure this out. And I'm sure they did tell me. And I just didn't listen. And I go, oh my God, I got to get shit for my resume. So I go and I start writing for the school paper. I had never done that. Um, and, and I, uh, the defunct literary magazine, I was like, let's start it up again and I can be the editor. So we did that. And then I got an internship at Hartford Monthly Magazine. And so through that, I was able to, uh, I moved to New York and I interned at um, Mirabella Magazine, which is now long gone, and Entertainment Weekly, which was brand new at the time. And so they were flush with cash. Again, this is the 90s. And so they pay, I got paid as an intern. I got paid more than I got paid at my first job. Um, at, at a magazine. And so I was interning there, super fun, going to premieres, went to like the premiere of Reservoir Dogs, like kind of was just like in this fun thing. Um, and by but, the way, those magazines at the time, were uh, that was all we had. So like if you wanted to read a story about the production of Goodwill Hunting, you would read a piece in Entertainment Weekly and you were like, holy shit, you, you get all this incredible. And I know like that you were part of that vehicle, right? Well, yeah, and actually, when I entered, Matt would come and like we would go to lunch. He would like come up to Matt, whatever hold on, Matt, floor Matt, that was. Matt Damon. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. Um, you know, because I dated him in college. Oh, um, really? Okay. You know the most random stuff about me. And you don't know that. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah, when I um, well, I had a lot of friends at Harvard. My brother went there, and a lot of my friends went there, and so we would go there on the weekends. It was an hour and a half drive from from Hartford. And, you know, frankly, like they really liked this influx of, of girls, of like fun party girls there. And one weekend I was visiting my friend Matthew and um, and we that's so weird. I was thinking about him yesterday. That's so weird. And um, and I met Matt and um, and I will tell you that I met him. And at the beginning of the night, he's like, oh, my God, you're going to be my girlfriend. And I was like, I don't even like that guy, whatever. And I've never seen someone so determined. His determination, by the end of the night, I was like, I'm in love with this guy. The <laughs> following Friday, that was a Saturday. The following Friday, he was shooting a movie called School Ties. Sure. And he's like, come visit me in Lowell. And I borrowed my roommate's car. And um, I had a friend 
at Wellesley who actually knew him. And so I picked up Susanna and we drove to the set and I walked on the set and he's like, oh, hey, this is my girlfriend, Anna. So like within a week, wow. that was that. And that was senior year. <laughs> That's pretty good senior year. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, at the time I was like, oh, my boyfriend's going to be so successful. He's such a good actor. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no one listens. I mean, he yeah. was already in school. I guess the movie hadn't come out yet, but School Ties was a was a great movie, and he 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 was great in that. Like he, he that was, School Ties was yeah a, a terrible movie. Oh no, School Ties was a great, but it was a great movie. I mean, that was as, I, as, I never liked it, but I and who knows, I haven't seen yeah. it in a long time. Uh, who, whatever you know, what I want to know, whatever happened to the tall guy? And remember the tall. Good looking Randall guy. Battenkopf. Okay, I have a weird thing about that. First of all, I did go to the premiere of School Ties with him in New York at, um, like it was at Rockefeller Plaza, okay. Rockefeller Center, I think. I, I, it's vague. In ninety, that was ninety two. Yeah. Okay. Um, so Randall Battenkopf. Here's the full circle nature. When I was on that very college trip, we went to Brown. And I was walking through the hallway and I was like, that is the most gorgeous man I have ever seen. <laughs> yes. And we ended up having a moment. So when I meet Matt, he goes, yeah, I live with this guy, Randall Battenkopf. I'm like, I know him. I like made out with him when I visited Brown. <laughs> oh He's like, that's so weird. So Randall, he he's awesome. He was in actually literally one of my favorite movies of all time, which is called Walking and Talking. Came out late 90s. Okay, I've never seen that. But he was in a ton he was he was featured in a ton of big movies around that time, and he never really turned the corner. Look, you and I disagree on the quality of school times, but we both yeah. agree on his star potential. He was the, he was the man, and he was a stud too. Oh, he was a stud. He's the nicest guy ever. Yeah. And those guys <laughs> all looked up to him so much because he was already working, and they wow. were like, you know. And I remember Matt telling me that like they would go to breakfast and all those guys were like, can I get pancakes and bacon? And, and, and Randall would be like, can I get yogurt with fruit? And, <laughs> you know, he sort of like taught them about how to be, you know, be a pro. How to be that kind of actor. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So this is awesome. So you're, you, you date Matt Damon and this is, let, let's, I'm going to bring us back to entertainment weekly. You were writing for them. And again, like yeah. that was such an incredible resource for for people like me on the outside at that time i was in college but you could go to a barnes and noble and read entertainment weekly and there was no other avenue to learn all this stuff so you are prime time like in you're working out of college yeah i really have this forrest gumpian quality of like randomly ending up at the party where i meet matt um you know i was in Jeff Bezos's wedding, Mackenzie was like my first friend. We were wow. in the same play group. So it's like I weirdly end up in these places, have no idea they're going to be places that I'll one day think I, it almost feels like I'm lying. Yeah. Even though this was my life. Um, so the thing about Entertainment Weekly, yes, I was there at a great time. I was also a total, like, just a little bit of an entitled lazy person. And so, you know, I I had, we had a group of interns and Jessica Shaw was this intern who like, she's going out at night and she's like, sees Martin Scorsese and tracks him down and does a feature interview. I'm going around to the different editors and being like, do you have any premiere invites you don't want? Like, <laughs> I was not doing yeah. anything. And so I did not get hired there. She still works there. Like that's what <laughs> you get if you're motivated. I, um, I really wanted to get a job. I needed to get a job. And um, and I met an editor there who said, I met him in the elevator, this guy, Steve Redcliffe, 
And he, I think he's a, t a TV editor at the New York Times still. But at the time, he's like, I just got made editor-in-chief of Parenting Magazine, which is in San Francisco. And I said, oh, I'm from San Francisco. I'm from Marin. And he said, oh, yeah, I just had my daughter. Um, I go, what's her name? He's like, Anna. I'm like, my name's Anna. So it was this kind of like thing where I think that I sort of impressed him for absolutely no reason. Yeah. And he goes, you know, if you want a job, we're looking for an editorial assistant. It turns out, I later found out, like, he kind of wanted to come in the way the way a new leader comes in with, like, I'm bringing in my team. So he hires me as this um, assistant to this wonderful man. He was the best boss I ever had, this guy, Bruce Raskin. And um, Bruce told me, he was like, what? Why are you bringing in this assistant? I, I should hire my assistant. Anyway, so I worked there for three years in San Francisco. And so you, what's the party situation like? You, now you seem like you have at least, like, you know, you're interning, you're you're still interning at this real high profile place. Now you have like some, like we'll call it stability. Um, oh God, no stability whatsoever. <laughs> so I mean, what's life allegedly, like? I mean, so I moved back to San Francisco and I was making $16,000 a year. Mm. Um, so I was having to get some help from my family and I'm living in San Francisco and I really, I do not like San Francisco. I just do not like it. And I was really unhappy there and I really wanted to escape. And it did feel like my friend's, um, from college were getting very serious. Yes, I sort of had the hallmarks of stability, but I was like constantly looking for people who wanted to have fun yeah. and not just be so serious. And um, I met a guy and uh, like fell in love with him and he lived in LA and I moved to LA and that was in 96. And um, I, I really, I never left except I have moved to New York back but i've yeah. essentially been here since 96 so you're at the forefront of like the, now you're at the internet like boom right and so all these places are looking for writers like yourself so how do we, were you able to ride that wave like as far as work was concerned yeah i mean from 96 to really 2007 i would say the magazine thing was still happening yeah. and it was awesome and i was super able to write it i I, I worked at Premier Magazine. You worked at People um, Magazine? I, I worked at, I got fired from at People. I, I managed to get fired without actually being an employee, which is a <laughs> real talent. Um, I was a full-time freelancer and I was fired um, in, in this kind of dramatic way. And then- What do you, hold I, on, what, what kind of dramatic way? What happened? Okay, I I really had a terrible attitude, and I was really entitled, and I really do think my alcoholism. This is alcoholic shit you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like born on third so base, a... thought I hit a triple. That's I heard that in a meeting <laughs> once, and that that was me, right? I was from a nice area outside Philly. I really didn't have to want for anything growing up, and then I was like, I was just entitled. Like, what do people have to yeah. give me? Yeah, I mean, totally entitled totally i always had a work ethic but it was it didn't matter because my attitude really prevented me from from being able to to do anything and so but all this this, this stuff happened i have no idea if i'm going to too much detail you're such a good interviewer that i'm like being brought back so i i at people you'd go out and you'd get quotes from from celebrities at night at you know at open bar places and so i do remember one night I got a quote from Kenny G. Remember yeah, Kenny G? The saxophonist. Yeah. And I must have gotten it wrong. 
and made him like I think I think he's like a bleeding heart Democrat and I think that I got the quote mixed up and it was like super uber Republican and so that quote ran and I got into a lot of trouble I was getting in trouble for stuff like that but I was like you know you're lucky to have me kind of a thing and then I was fired and um and then you know really circled the drain I worked at Disney that didn't go so well I was doing coverage of scripts um and that wasn't going super well and then I mean and like my alcoholism was like I would I would go okay a a gram is sixty dollars this was the 90s I get paid I I get paid fifty dollars to do uh, you know, basically a book report on a screenplay, but $60 if it's an overnight one. So my math skills have never been good, but I was like, that seems like a good deal. I'll buy a gram of Coke and I'll read this script and I'll do the thing. And I was an aspiring screenwriter at the time. So I was pretty bitter at these people who had representation and were getting their scripts submitted. So I would just kind of say they were all terrible. So that didn't, <laughs> that didn't go well. And then, um, and then I really was, I actually was working at a website. So then, yes, the internet boom, I'm working at this website called Style Click and I'm being paid pretty well and I'm a disaster. I am like doing coke in the bathroom. Um, I am not doing well. And um, God, I, this it's so weird, this part I don't remember that well. I just decided to put myself in rehab, literally. And that's how it started? That's how it started, Will yeah. you, uh, will you skip some stuff I want to touch on before, yeah. before we get to your recovery? So. One of the things I heard you talk about was you were writing like specs for TV shows and you were doing it when you were doing it when you were coked out of your mind and you were doing it on shows that you hadn't even seen before. That that is absolutely accurate. I wrote a bunch of specs for Third Rock from the Sun, a show I'd never seen. I'd never seen. So for people who don't know, what's a spec, by the way? It's it's a sample script. It's basically like watching the show and coming up with an idea and writing the script. So, yeah. So I. I, I was doing that. That was not good. I wrote a Dawson's Creek uh, where they're all on Coke. And I remember I wrote it at my grandmother's in San Francisco, in Palm Springs, like all like wired. Uh, um, so yeah, that didn't work out. I did write a Sex in the City spec that got a ton of attention. Um, in, it was like almost like a fever dream. Like I just wrote this one thing that was really good and I, I had agents wooing me and I did get, I did get um, an agent and, and I didn't get work from that, but it was like, that was a big thing. Um, but I was still a disaster. So it, when, when you, you end up and you, you uh, like, I know for me, especially cocaine, like you really do end up alone and it's yeah. really weird and it's just like you're alone a lot. You're you're literally going. You're going totally crazy. Uh, yeah. And then what what happened to you when you said I I, I need help? I, I heard you say that you because I can relate to this too. You didn't really have any responsibilities to shrug. So it wasn't like anything no. like crazy like that happened. But you no. you did something happen where you where you hit that jumping off point in in or I guess two thousand at some point. What happened? Yeah. I mean, what happened is I wanted to die. I wanted to die like all the time. And, um, and I knew that I couldn't keep living with cocaine and I was totally convinced I couldn't live without it. I was a hundred percent convinced of that. And I had been taken to slash gone to meetings. I'd maybe been to like five over the previous three years. And, and the any connection were- when you went to those meetings and any like, Hey, like, cause at this point, if you're at any, any, you know, you have a problem. 
I mean, yeah. so any connection when you're going to those meetings, anything where you're like, I can co- I can come back here if I need to, or you're just like, I'm not like these people, just comparing yourself out. It was weird because the people were amazing. I saw that they were great, and I was pretty convinced that I could keep drinking. And so I would like, hey, nice to meet you. And I would tell people, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to keep drinking and do this. And, and I, I did not think I could do it. And when I got so desperate and I do not know what happened that morning. It, so I went to rehab May 2nd of 2000. So it was, I guess, let's say like April 28th. I do not know that morning was really no different than any other morning, but I woke up and, um, and I was like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And I called my parents and told them that I had a problem. And back then I really looked at them as, you know, my support system Um, because I didn't have, they were the closest thing I had to that. And I remember my mom going like, put your cats in the car, come home. And I drove home and I was so depressed. I was like, this is terrible. But I convinced them, you know, they helped me a little bit financially. And I found um, a rehab that would let me do outpatient because I did have a job. (laughs) So it all goes awry at StyleClick. But there are so many websites that I'm able to maneuver. maneuver I like how you're, by by the way, I don't skip over the master manipulator that like can talk their way out of inpatient rehab because you have a job. That's pretty good because it's tough to do. Oh my God. They were like, we are not an outpatient rehab. It's promises. Like they had a very well established. We do not do outpatient. How did you know about promises back then? Because it was like the only rehab people knew about because there was like Charlie Sheen went there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I thought, Oh, this place is really fancy. And I called them and I forget what the price was, but it was like, wait, that's not that much. I could do this. And (laughs) I don't know what I said to them. That al- I, I still to this day because people when I was there are like you're outpatient they don't allow outpatient <laughs> um, and and so I um, show up the following Monday which was May second and um, and I said I think what I said to them on the phone I think I was honest and I said look I have a job and if it's all I have in my life and if I don't have that this job I have nothing. I have no hope. So will you please allow me to do this job and also do this? I think that's what I said. Well, congratulations oh. to you and your silver tongue. I went to rehab. I tried to get an extra day at the gym and they were like, fuck off, dude. Go back downstairs. You know, that's that's not easy. That's not easy to get Where did done. you go? I went to Karen in Warnersville, hey. Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, Karen's awesome. Do you know Paul Hockemeyer? No, I mean, maybe I met him, but not off the top of my head. I think he was actually a therapist there, but okay. he, he, he was awesome. Um, and my thing, my friend Terrence went there. Um, so that changed my but, life. So, so I want to ask you, so I get, I got to treatment for yeah. me and I was like, I was out of gas. I really was. I started to listen. I started to pay attention. I started to, I was always like, you know, AA is, is it's all God or, you know, anything to keep me from getting sober. Right. I was just yeah. fighting and fighting. What, what happened to you? Like, how were you able to transition into recovery, into acceptance, into, you know, getting well? I think the same as you. I was so exhausted by my bullshit and that that I was like, I am willing to do this thing. I knew it would be terrible. I had no delusions that I would like it, (laughs) but I knew I would kill myself otherwise. And I thought... I'll try it. And, um, and I really loved it from the beginning. I mean, rehab's pretty fun. Yeah. That's what they don't, 
they don't tell you that. Yeah. Um, and everyone's, we're all smoking cigarettes and I meet these people and they're super funny and they're super cool. And they're talking about, you know, solutions to problems. I didn't realize I had until I heard them talking and I had no one in my life. I had no friends at this point. I had no one that wanted to be around me. And so, and, and then they were like, we're going to go to a meeting. And I'm like, oh, this fucking AA <laughs> shit, whatever. And they, they, this druggy buggy, they like put us oh, in the yeah, yeah. and they take us and, and it was actually, I'm so grateful. They took us to these really creepy <laughs> meetings with total weirdos, like a few people, and that was so much like group therapy that I like fell in love with it before I remembered that I hated it. And that because they were these small things that reminded me of group, I was able to get over my fear and go to the big ones. And the big ones is really like where I came alive. Yeah. And found my people. And I've heard you talk about like I grew up in AA and yeah. I, I, I uh, like forget the fact that it saved my life and it taught me how to live. But I also like learned how, I learned how to talk. I learned how to just to be, uh, and, and it's just, it was such an amazing journey. But, but like you actually, when I went to, it took me forever, right? Like 10 years to get a year. But when I finally went to rehab, I didn't go back out. You went back out because you had that. Okay. Cocaine was my problem. And then you had, you had one more, I guess, or one more experience where you tested the theory. Like what happens when you go out? Like walk me through that, that whole process. Well, I am a very efficient person. And so I was very efficient with my relapse and, um, and I, it, it, it's awesome because it could have lasted <laughs> a lot longer. What happened with me was like, um, I started to get that idea and I have my, my a birthday was this week or last week. So it's like really been in my mind. Um, but, you know, I started to get, you know, the relapse happens before the relapse, right? And I started to get these ideas. Um, somebody I went to rehab with, my best friend at rehab t- tells me that he did it. He is like, I had a Coke mender. And I'm like, was it terrible? Did you hear the birds chirping? Did you want to die? And he goes, no, it was amazing. So like that lodges in my head. Then I'm at a party and I see this guy who I always thought was like, I dated in the nineties and I always thought he was the coolest guy ever. And he was sober and I'm like, Hey, guess what? I'm sober now. And he goes, Oh yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't do that anymore. Oh God, no, no, no. And so that, that lodged in my brain. And then that very night, I remember this guy says to me, this like guy I was not into says, Hey, do you want to go out? In fact, I could make you dinner this weekend and it's like this idea planted in my head. I could drink. I could drink. And I opted not to call my sponsor. I opted to call a guy who's wonderful, who had taken me to a meeting, who's been sober probably like over 30 years now. He, and I called him. And I said, I want to drink tonight. And he said, don't. But you can but revisit tomorrow. I mean, he said all the right things. But what he did not do is drive over and stop me. <laughs> and in my entitlement, I thought... Well, fuck him. He didn't help. And so I went over to this guy's house and I had a glass of wine. And I I remember I I remember I was just like, this is the big deal. This is why I sit at 730 in the morning with all these strangers and hold hands like this is not even a big deal. And then I had more and more and more. And then he pulled out ecstasy. And then I ended up over the course of I don't even know, six or seven hours taking four and a half hits. And in the morning. I thought nobody needs to know about this. You know, it was, it was November 18th. I was like, I had six, six ish months. I was like, no one needs to know. 
And then I talked to my friend from rehab and I ended up telling him and then I called my sponsor and then I went to a meeting that night and that's where it started. The anatomy of a relapse. I appreciate you. Like, yeah, because it's so relatable, like the seeds and those seeds and can, we can still plant those today. Right. Yeah. Like, like that bullshit we tell ourselves like the, Oh, well, you know, it's not in vogue anymore because this guy who I, I look up to is not doing it. And, you know, you hear people say that, like, you'll start to drink or you'll think about drinking and you'll be like, yeah, that was just a phase that I went yeah. through, you know, all of it. And then the next thing you know, but, and that's amazing for you too. Like, cause here you are 23 years sober, carrying the message, helping so many people. And it's like these little moments that, that, that change everything like that morning, yeah. like nobody needs to know. And, you know, but you got yeah. honest and what, what starts to like happen to your life? When now all of a sudden you pushed all the chips, you're, you're all in what happens I'm all to you? In. Well, first of all, what's interesting about those two people that planted the seed. I know them both today. I watched them both struggle, like struggle for the next decade in and out. I think one of them is still out. And it's like, those were the people I was looking to for inspiration about what you do. That's what happened at the end of that story. I think the other guy, I think one of those guys has like 10 years at this point, mm -hmm. but my God, did he struggle. And, um, and when I was all in, I was all in, I'm an extremist. So I was like, I needed to tell everybody I was sober. I wanted to get the whole world sober. Um, I, um, I, I, I did wait four years before writing a book about it Party but girl. i um yeah because i i really did i i'm grateful i had that perspective because i see people like be sober five minutes and start instagram accounts where they're like inspiring people and writing books and and i am grateful i waited that long um and then and yeah and then through that book i ended up you know really um, there wasn't, there weren't people out there talking about recovery. When did the I'm book so, come out? Like 2004, 2005? 2007. 2007. Okay. Yeah. So you wait, so you write the book four years after you're sober in 2004 and then it takes a little while for it to. Oh, and, it takes traditional publishing sucks. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we'll talk about too. Stuff yeah. you, what you're involved in now. So that took a while. Yeah. Right. And how did. Yeah. That, were you writing early on in recovery, like along with all the other stuff you were doing? Were you just like journaling and stuff? Was that an outlet for you still? Yeah, I was. I mean, from 2000, those four years, I was writing for magazines. I was writing full time. And I think I kind of got my, you know, writing fulfillment or whatever through that. I, I think I was trying different things. And then. When did you start to then, do like TV and stuff? That was. I, I'm trying. Okay. What happened was I was writing, I, I, I wrote a story for Playboy uh, with, I just lucked into the situation where this woman, uh, Amy Sohn, was a friend of my boss at Premier Magazine. And he calls, she calls him and she goes, do you know any writers in LA who would, I have this idea called Sex in Two Cities where I would switch places with a writer in LA and we would date in each other's cities for a week. We would set each oh, other wow. up on dates and then we would write about it. And he goes, yeah, no, this girl might do it. So she was a hustler. She sells the story to Playboy, but I haven't done anything. And I go to New York for, to write this story and end up having this crazy time. The crazy thing about it is it's when like sex in the city is huge. I meet Chris Noth and like go on a date with him like oh. during that week. Again, like this weird, of course, I randomly meet him. Um, 
And now, did you and mention so, him? Did you mention I, I went on a date with Mr. Big in this Playboy uh, article, or do you? It actually was a terrible thing because because what happened was we kind of had a thing for a while. He's he's a wonderful guy, and I didn't put it in the story. I just like called him the TV actor, and then I think I can't again. This was ancient history. Like page six wrote about it, and he was like. I cannot believe you did this. And I was like, you are right. You know, one of those where you're like, I've got no excuses. I should not have. Was it one of those like page six, like blind items, like this actor? Yeah. Was, yeah no, like... I think they said his oh, name. Really? <clears throat> um, and so I meet the Look, editor. I, by the way, I... I can tell people that aren't watching, I can tell you're like almost in pain uh, reliving this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was terrible. It's yeah. just like not a cool thing to do to anybody. And mm. I, and, um, and but I meet the editor there, this guy Chris Napolitano, and he's like, "Oh my God, the story! I'm so excited about the story. Would you want to be in the magazine?" And I'm like, "Okay." And so they do this whole shoot where we're not nude, but like it's a Playboy shoot, and I I was just like, "Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah." And because of the content and like the way they did that story, it was it was like a huge thing. It was like the then equivalent of viral. And I'm like fielding calls from agents and and all this stuff. And and we ended up selling it as a reality show pilot to this guy, Ken Mock, who created America's Next Top Model. And the pilot wasn't picked up. But, you know, when those things happen, I was just like, yeah, of course. Like, I didn't realize that was never going to happen again. Yeah. But it was this and you're so, Cinderella you're sober story. this time. I'm sober. And I really do feel like the universe had been like waiting for me to show up for myself. And it like just presented me with gift after gift after gift, like cash and prizes gifts, like not necessarily the internal ones, the, those two. And, um, and anyway, after that story, I became known as like a sex dating and relationship expert. Oh, oh wait, I forgot. When I was at premiere, I started going on TV to talk about celebrities. Like that was just kind of part of the thing you could yeah. get to do. Then it was about sex dating and relationships. And then it was like about recovery. When Party Girl came out, I had a TV agent and I guess the Today Show called him and was like, oh, we got this story about recovery. And he's like, you know, why don't you like tr try Anna? And, and, you know, with TV stuff back then, if you did well, they called you every day. Yeah. And, and back then there weren't you know, rehab owners with publicists being paid all this money to get them on TV. So I just got to do it all the time. And people didn't know what to do with all this. It's like Paris Hilton, Lindsay Lohan, like all these people are going out, getting fucked up, getting in yeah. trouble. And so they needed somebody to lean on and you could provide insight and talk about your book too. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it was like that lucky timing that you don't know is lucky timing. You're just like, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you talk, and by the way, so you talk about, I love talking about relationships and stuff and sobriety, and I won't keep you too much longer, about 15 more minutes. So we talk about relationships and sobriety. That was something I really had trouble with. Like when I first yeah. got sober, I, you know, like you go back to like you at that party when, yeah. you know, you couldn't put two sentences together to talk to the Zimmerman dude. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so that's how I was when I got sober. I'm a kid again, you know, I, everything yeah. it's arrested development. How did you, I mean, you know, I'm you're out there dating Chris Noth, but how, how did you find the ability to, to get back out there? Cause you know, there was a while where I was, I mean, some people might still say it, I'm undateable, you know, like, but you know, then you, then you do become dateable. Like how, how do you find your way there? Cause I think matters of the heart and relationships are such a huge component of why we drink and what happened when we drank. 
totally. My difficulties were not at all that. I, I could talk to anybody. I, it was like, it was like sobriety unleashed this comfort. I, I, it was very strange. Like I was at more parties having more fun than I had ever had. And so that part wasn't challenging. The challenging part was my picker. I just kind of really, and I, I, I mean, as far as I understand it, no good dudes showed up for a very, very, very long time. Um, or if they did, I just didn't treat them very well. And so I, I just really tried and failed and was very depressed about it and couldn't seem to, you know, get a, something satisfying going for a very, very, very long time. And so what's happening to you, uh, like in, in meetings and in the 12 step community, like, how are you starting to grow, uh, like internally? Cause we talked about externally and you mentioned like cash and prizes on the outside. How, how did you find a way to get strength to navigate those waters? You know, I don't, I don't really, I don't really know, honestly. I mean, I do think that I was kind of dry for a long time, you know, because I look back and I, I wasn't super nice <laughs> for like, what was your, what was know. your, like, uh, how, where was for me, you know, was recovery first in your life? Or probably not. Right. Cause stuff, yeah, all this, it, don't let the gifts of sobriety get in the way of the gifts of sobriety. I I've heard. Before, right. You know? It was always, I've always gone to meetings. I've always prayed. I've always had it as a priority, but I think I was, missing a kind of, I, I'm not, I don't even know yet how to articulate it, but, but I think I was very focused on the external stuff, even though I'm a great like student, I would do all the things I was supposed to do. And then, and so then I did meet my boyfriend and I don't know if you know this, like I have a five month old. Oh, no way. Yeah. Congratulations. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. I didn't know that. I knew you had a boyfriend and I was going to ask yeah. you, like, how do you put together a successful relationship? But congratulations. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So my son was born on July 10th and wow. he was born via surrogate. And um, it's a complete, I mean, beyond a gift of sobriety. Like, this is not something that happens for people at this age. And um, but I am a very, you know, I am still that, that, that girl who can talk her way into outpatient and an inpatient rehab. <laughs> so I was like, I'm getting a kid. I do not care what it takes or what we have to do. And, you know, luckily I met a man who felt, who was like, sure. That's kind of what the whole thing is. That's finding the right person. That's your picker now is working. Uh, the picker began to work. And I will say, you know, I was sober and life was working, but, but like, it, it was kind of like the world changed, you know, there were no more magazines. My book deals sucked. Um, the TV stuff was fine, but I wasn't getting paid to do it. I'm dating these undateable men. I'm like not making real money. And I met him and I will say, I did not think he was right at first. Since meeting him, well, no, what happened is I did EMDR. I did trauma therapy. I got some stuff figured out. I met him. My business took off. I bought a house. Um, and, and then we started making the steps towards parenthood. Wow. 
That's yeah. amazing. I mean, that's that's the miracles of of recovery we talk about. And look, life is it's not all unicorns and rainbows, right? Shit happens. Yeah. Um, but uh, along the way, you know, you're being your best self, and you're able to tap into that. And then you create this. What you're doing with publishing is kind of amazing, and it's like to think that it didn't exist before you is like it's like wow, how how come that didn't? You know, like so you. Well, what? That's generous, but uh, other people were. I, I mean, I really just copied someone else's business, <laughs> honestly. Really? Because that's the first, I was, well, the first I've heard of it was from you, and maybe that's because you do a lot of uh, recovery books and, and self help stuff. And yeah, you know, you basically find an, entrepreneurs will come to you, and you are a vehicle to help them create a book. And you talk about yeah. the fact that your book, it may not make a ton of money, but the idea of having a book is like the best marketing tool of all time, right? Exactly. I couldn't say it better myself. That's yeah, that's exactly it. What happened is Darren Prince. Darren no came way. was like, Oh yeah, I would not have a business without that man. Wow. Um, yeah, he was just on oh, here yeah. like a month ago. Yeah. He, he is a force of nature. And yeah. he reached out to me and he and I started talking and he said he's like, We're gonna do something together. When we were trying to figure out what it was, he really wanted to get into recovery advocacy. He wasn't at all. He was just the sports agent. And, and he asked me to write his book. And I said what I say to anyone who asked me to write a book, which is no. <laughs> um, and he was very insistent. And so there was a girl I knew, a writer who needed work. And I was like, well, what if I hired her to do it? And he goes, as long as you edit it, that's fine. And then he's like, okay, we need to publish. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. And he goes, well, basically I'll pay you to figure it out. And um, figured it out. And then from there, um, Emily Lynn Paulson, who has a, you know, who's a big recovery advocate now came and it just has been one after the other. Now it's fewer recovery books and more, you know, business books, but it's been, we, we published about 50, I think 52 books. Wow. And yeah. How and, many New York times bestsellers do you have yourself? I only have one. I okay. love that it gets misconstrued. I, I was on a podcast and they posted it yesterday and they were like, she had six New York Times bestsellers by the age of 28. And I wrote them. I was like, that is not remotely <laughs> accurate. Please, yeah. no. So your no, first book was Party Girl. And then how many have you written? Seven? Yeah. I mean, it's hard. You can't, like, I kind of do some as projects. Uh, I don't even know some of them which to count. I co-wrote okay. a, a couple. So, but I, I say eight, but I don't know more like 10 or 11. How close was Party Girl or is it still to being turned into a, a movie? Closer all the time. Um, you know, it's been optioned over and over again. The difference this time is that we actually have the money and the most beautiful, insane part of it is I signed an option ag agreement with a guy. I know, sober guy. He randomly finds a business partner. And that business partner was one of my closest friends at Trinity. He was engaged to my roommate. Oh. And most of our early partying was with him. So he is now controlling the funding for it. So it's just this beautiful full circle moment. moment. We have a direct, we just got a director and it's out to actresses right now. So we're, you know, we're, we're talking about shooting in June. Wow. I mean, that's pretty cool. Did, did you meet, by the way, did you meet Darren in recovery? No, he reached out to me. And this is a great, I always talk about when people are like social media, whatever. He found me through a hashtag on Instagram, wow. uh, like a recovery hashtag. He was searching and he reached out to me and was like, I'm going to be in LA. And I, I'm so bummed. I have a meeting in eight minutes because I could talk yeah. to you okay. forever. <laughs> All right. Last thing. What are you doing now every day to stay sober, to stay serene and to bring this kind of energy that you did today 
um, for a guy like me, some rando on a podcast about recovery? Like, how, really, how do you how do you continue to to bring it like that? I go to a meeting every day, pretty much. I skipped yesterday, and I was such a bitch. God, <laughs> wow. Um, a pretty well because of Zoom, you know it, that's that's much easier. Um, I pray and meditate every day. Um, I, I sponsor, not that many people ask me to sponsor them and I get incredibly offended by that, but <laughs> I do have a sponsee who's amazing. And, um, and, um, you know, I continue to, to, to do, to, to show up and, and try to be a, the best person I can be and try to be of service. What do you tell somebody, a young woman or a guy who's like, and I can't, I can't get a day. What, 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 what do I do? Somebody that's listening right now. Um, I will, I say, um, I get it. Most everyone I know was in that situation. Some of us did it before coming to 12 step and some of us do it after I would imagine doing it after is more painful to actually show up, see there's a solution, not be able to do it. I didn't, I didn't, I did all that. I did all my, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. I can't quit. I can't quit before really I got there. Um, I would say like, keep trying. Um, you know, if, if I could, have the formula for surrender, I would, I, Elon Musk would not be the richest person alive. I would be, I do not know how it works. I just know that I've had multiple surrenders in my life and what has preceded them is the deepest pain I know. And so if you're in that state, like it can happen any moment, there's like this moment of willingness and grace that just crosses. And if you get that latch onto that, and if you haven't gotten that, it is coming. Anna David, you're the best. Thank you so much. Oh my God, that was so time. fun. Yeah. And I so appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. You were the literally the best interviewer I've ever talked to. And that's Stop. the truth. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. 